Hey everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. My name is Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host. Hi. It's Lala. I was waiting for you to say my name. <laughs> it's Lala Ericoglu, and today we are covering something that is unusual, I would say, which is the solo safari. And so we kind of put together a crack team of people that we know who have done it before, uh, because Lala and I have not. And so we're joined by Traveler's very own features director, Alex Postman. Hi there. Contributor and writer, Mary Holland. Hi. And Roar Africa's CEO and founder, Deb Kallmeyer. Hi. It is so rare for all of you three to be in the same city, let alone same country at the same time. So I'm very excited that you're all in this room. And this is like accent podcast extraordinaire. I know. I was, it is. <laughs> We've like taken I have over. to come up with an accent. I, <laughs> I can pull out the Southern drawl, but not, not well enough, guys. But I kind of wanted to just start talking about safaris in general, which is what is it that makes the safari such a dream trip for so many people and honestly one of the hardest to tackle? I think a lot of it has to do with just the extraordinary circumstances. For Americans, you're halfway around the world if you're on an African safari or Indian safari. You are in a landscape that is utterly unfamiliar to you and sort of transporting. There are exerting on your emotions all the kind of cultural and literary baggage you might bring to this experience, whether it's out of Africa or it's books you've read. So expectations are high. And then I will say that nothing can really prepare you for encounters with wildlife. You've seen nature documentaries, you know, you've probably been to Yellowstone Park and seen a bison or two, but really it is so raw and elemental in a way that no other experience is. Deb, you plan safaris for other people, correct? Yes, that's what we do. The logistics of planning a safari to me are so difficult. How do you kind of approach planning safaris? Yeah, it's very overwhelming and there is so much noise out there and I think you see so many beautiful pictures on TV, on the web and sometimes that's not really the real picture. So it's really important, I think, to speak to when you go to any country, you want to speak to somebody who's from there because it makes all the difference and they'll probably give you the real picture. I try and meet with our clients in person or at least speak to them on the phone to try and understand sort of what's their travel DNA. What are they going to like? Do they want something contemporary? Do they want something more traditional? Do they love being around people or is luxury to them perhaps isolation? You know, for a New Yorker, it's like... <laughs> get me away from people as much as possible. <laughs> and there's so much more that goes into choosing where to go on safari than just your big five and your high count linen and your plunge pool, because it really does matter. You know, who's going to host you? Who are the guides? How qualified are they? How long have they been working there? Because there are a lot of cowboys out there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we try and customize it per client because there is a lot of choice and there's something for everybody, I think. And Mary, when did you start going on safari? Because you're a bit of a veteran. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> I think my first safari was probably to the Kruger National Park as a child. And my, my dad took me to the Kalahari when I was, I think, 13 years old. And that was kind of my worst nightmare because I wanted to be hanging out in the mall. Yeah. <laughs> looking at shops and my dad hauled me in his he has this old Land Rover which he still has and he drove us all the way from Cape Town up to the Kalahari and I, so we sort of camped a couple of nights and stayed in these chalets and I've been going on safari since I mean I can remember 
Well, and recently you wrote a story for us um, in our solo travel package about taking a solo safari. And I'm curious to know what a safari can give you as a traveler that other solo trips cannot. Well, I think, I mean, weirdly enough, I think that you know, going solo on a safari is actually the perfect kind of solo experience because when you generally check into a lodge or when you plan a trip, say, with Raw Africa, you're generally, when you're staying at a lodge, you're staying with a lot of other guests. So you're not really ever on your own. You know, when you sit around the campfire in the evening, you're always sort of chatting to different guests and a lot of lodges, they have tables where everyone sits down and has dinner together. And I think that someone would think that it could be quite a lonely experience because I mean, when you're lying in your room at night and you can hear a lion roaring a couple of miles away, I mean, it, it can be quite startling and it can be very scary when you wake up and you're on your own, you sort of clamber for the light switch. I um, had that in Big Sur, but it was with bobcats. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, either or. That's that very alarming. California exactly. safari. Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think that people can think that it's a daunting experience, but really you're just, you're always surrounded by other guests, you have guides, and you, it's quite interesting how you quickly form relationships relationships because everyone sort of goes out on these drives and they come back and they're just so eager to share their stories and you kind of have something in common with everyone who's there um, which I think is it's actually a really wonderful trip to do as a solo traveler. Well then in your piece you describe this wonderful scene of being at the end of the day and sitting with all these people that often were lifelong friends or you know tight-knit families who were traveling and then you were also with them and that your guide had done a really good job of sort of kick-starting the conversation and getting everyone talking and um, I'm going to quote you because I thought it was a really nice <laughs> um, bit but you write we launched into conversation about what we'd seen that day a leopard stalking an antelope a clan of hyenas lying outside their den people asked did anyone else hear the lions roaring late last night there was one thing that connected us all we were filled with stories we couldn't wait to share which I think sums it up perfectly, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that at that time I was on my own and it was a, a group of tight-knit Dutch tourists who all knew each other. And a lot of, some of them couldn't speak English and um, we were kind of sharing stories and the one, the shame, the one man got out his camera and he was showing me pictures, I mean, lots of pictures of all the day's sightings. Um, and it was, it really was something that connected all of us because they were so excited to share their stories about what they'd seen. And even though we had been on different safari vehicles, we hadn't shared the same, I hadn't shared the same experience as them. We'd all had cool experiences and it was just a nice way for us to kind of connect do people get competitive? Do they try and one-off each other with what oh they've seen? Oh my gosh, seen? absolutely. Always. Totally. And like, they, like the one guy like saw a better angle and then th this one had his camera out and the other one was showing this. So it or was definitely... Or the group that saw a kill gets to brag about it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. I know. Well, and Postman, you have been on solo safaris kind of involuntarily, I would say, as a result of working where we do and being sent on them. Mm -hmm. Um would it be your choice to go on a solo safari? I think it depends on what stage of life you're at or what's going on. I will say, while it could be considered a luxury to have your own guide and tracker to take you out for the day, it can get kind of lonely. And especially if you're leaving at 6 a.m., you don't get back until lunch. You know, you want to be polite, keep the conversation flowing. But I think shared excitement with at least a couple of other people, I think would just help stimulate a better experience. So I have found it to be strangely tiring in a certain way to be on my own where I'm sort of doing 
all the work of asking questions and making observations. That said, I agree with Mary that it would be pretty seamless to join another group and probably at, at most lodges, I mean, it's expensive to book your own car and, and guide. I think sometimes those groups traveling together welcome fresh blood and are mm-hmm. happy to have somebody Absolutely. else with them. Yeah. Yeah. And Deborah, you obviously, are, I mean, you're like the expert of experts when it comes to planning these trips. Have you done many of them by yourself? Have you had to scout by yourself? Kind of how, what have those know, experiences yes. been like? <laughs> it's funny because that's probably the lovely part of my job, getting to go and see all the properties or so it seems. But I'm a real scaredy cat when it comes to snakes and things like that. <laughs> so I always am looking for people to go with me. And um, when I do end up going on my own, I'm pretty all all the senses are pretty heightened put it that way but yes I do I do it a lot and uh, you know it's a it's a great blessing to go into these places and meet the people that run these properties you know who's going to be the host who the chefs are I love meeting the guides and learning where they come from Um, sometimes I even get to bump into people that you know I grew up with or went to school with that are now working into these properties and that's special it's special for our guests when they go because there's some kind of association And then it immediately gives a sense of trust, I imagine. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, are there lodges that are more welcoming to solo travelers or that are just better for if you're on your own? You know, I've had a lot of solo travelers, especially from New York, you know, people with means and that are really adventurous and and are keen to go to South Africa. Um, And... I don't think that there's any particular property that lends itself towards being more welcoming. I think they're all so warm and I think that's part of the enjoyment for people is the surprise at the level of hospitality, the great English, the the sort of really good understanding of taking care of people and service. But there are... um, you know, places where I think you might feel a little bit more comfortable just in terms of culture as a first world female. So there's a particular lodge I love called Swalu in the Kalahari. I think you've been there, hey Mary? Mm-hmm. No, you haven't? Okay. No. So that that lodge I love because they're so proactive in hiring females in, that, in jobs that were traditionally male. So you've got female trackers, you've got female guides, you've even got female pilots, you know, flying these PC-12s. And it's just so cool. Instead of bumping into the, you know, what looks like a 15-year-old game ranger that's now flying an aeroplane. There's this chic, sophisticated woman that's piloting it. And I, I just... South Africa's quite a... Um, chauvinistic society and there's so many tribal things to overcome for um, certainly women of colour in South Africa let alone then the traditional Afrikaans Mm -hmm. approach to you know what we've all been subjected to in our lives of you know well really you want a job Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be at home having children so I think there are properties that do a great job and that are really pioneering females in what were traditionally male roles and so those are particularly interesting to go and travel to. And you were saying that you've had lots of inquiries from solo travellers wanting to join the trip. Has it been a sort of an uptick or has it been a sort of a gradual increase? I think in the last year we've seen a lot more, a lot more and maybe also word of mouth spreads and you know start getting traction that way. And I guess it's one of those things that when you see someone else do it you think oh wait this is possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm curious when when your team is is planning tours, you know, with sometimes with cruises, there's like a extra fee for solo travelers who are now taking up space that two people could have taken up before. 
And I'm curious, like, is it way more expensive to go on your own? How does that work? just on the logistics side as well. Yeah, I mean, typically your safari um, places are counting on two people in a room. So it, it is priced, you know, based on a sort of sharing rate. And for a single, there is a supplement and that can be 50%. So it can be quite a lot, but there are lodges that don't charge single supplements. So it's getting to know which ones are those and do those meet the traveler's needs. So that would be a good question to ask if you're looking yeah, to travel Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Well, I feel we definitely touched on loneliness a little bit, Alex, when you um, talked about often being just being you and the guide for long stretches at a time. But obviously, safari trips are often populated by honeymooners and families. I'd be interested to hear from everyone who's done a solo safari, kind of how what your tricks are for sort of combating loneliness and not feeling left out from whatever it is that everyone else in that lodge or on that trip is experiencing? Well, in my limited experience, often the, the lodge will ask you if for dinner you want to sit by yourself or you want to sit with the group. And I have always chosen to sit with the group, you know, for the reason that Mary was describing, because you can just compare notes about the day. Um, but also it's just fun to know who's there and why they're there. And um, especially for Americans who have less vacation than some other nationalities. Safari. All, all other nationalities. All other nationalities. <laughs> yeah, except maybe Japan. Um, <laughs> safari is such a bucket list experience still. And people are there for like major milestone birthdays or, you know, it's, a, it's an anniversary. And everybody is just feeling so celebratory and so kind of like embracing life. I was going to add earlier that happened to me today with um, Calvin Cotter from Cotter Safari. Is that mm -hmm. the, the yeah, full name right. of the lodge, yeah. 1920s Safari? There are four generations who, who work there. And I asked him about solo safari travel. And he said that typically the, the single travelers who come are seeking something, that they are, they've just gotten over a serious illness or maybe they're divorced. They're just there to really plug deeply into, you know, existence and um, contemplate. And so he said that they can sort of read, you know, who needs space and who needs to be given that kind of latitude for contemplation. So I do think it is for people who are just like at that moment need to just completely remove themselves from their context and just sort of have a cosmic moment that um, I think safari is a great choice. And Mary, I feel like for your story, you spoke to a few people who kind of touched on that note, right? Yeah, well, I mean, when I was um, on a, a different time that I was in Rwanda, I came across a, a female traveler who was on her own. Um, she was going gorilla tracking. It was just a bucket list thing that she had wanted to do. And I think the interesting thing about doing gorilla tracking is that you are sort of lumped into a group of eight people. So irrelevant of whether you're on your own or with five people, you're going to be grouped with other people. And I think uh, sharing an experience like that, which is, is it's really quite a remarkable experience, um, seeing the gorillas, that really kind of 
brings everyone together and gets people talking and gets people um, sort of, yeah, discussing things. But I, I would agree with Alex in saying that it's it's it really is a celebratory thing where you find, you know, someone who's celebrating some kind of milestone. Or I think for this woman, you know, it was just a bucket list thing and she obviously, you know, wanted to do it. I don't know whether no one was available at that moment or whether no one, you know, someone maybe couldn't afford it or whatever it was, but that was her mission. And so she went off on her own and she was really, really happy to meet people and chat to people and um, I think you know maybe at that point she was she'd been on her own for a bit so she wanted to make friends I'm not sure but um, yeah but she had the opportunity to do so because of the group environment I think so I think you know because I think you know I think it can be such a daunting experience as a as a female traveler but knowing that you're going to be grouped together with other people it just makes you feel a little bit more secure that you're not alone. Mary, don't you think that um, a lot of people don't realise the sort of pleasure that comes with the isolation mm-hmm. and the sort of mystery and allowing oneself to sort of rewild? Yeah. You know, I find people find themselves on safari and one of the reasons they say it's such a profound experience and often use words like it's life changing Mm -hmm. is because they finally kind of got in touch with themselves again and for me I love to just be on the vehicle in silence Mm -hmm. and just absorbing and in my own world taking it all in and you're processing so many things Um, so I also think it might be daunting but it's important people understand it's a very spiritual journey and it's Mm -hmm. a very personal journey um, that can be incredibly rewarding. No, I would agree with you. And I think also I'm, I'm quite like serious about animal spotting, so I don't like to talk in the vehicle. <laughs> Very competitive. <laughs> I want to hear more about this. Like, I need, like, I've got my bush eyes on. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm scanning. So, like, no conversation, please, for me on the vehicle. But it is. It, it really is. It's such an incredible moment, it, you know, to be on your own and to kind of just be in such close proximity to animals and to really, really take it in on your own because you're kind of having that experience by yourself. So, See, that was probably my mistake, feeling like I needed to fill the silence. You you were working. Chit-chatting. You were working. Right. You were taking yeah. everything. You were working. It's so like hard. when you go to the hairdresser right. and you don't know like, when to stop oh, talking no. to the hairdresser. I know. I, know. I do usually do that. Well, right. You don't want to be boring. Exactly. No, and I, I think that's interesting that the point that you made, Deb, because we just did a, a story about um, we asked a bunch of people about their tactics for combating loneliness on their own. And so many people said, like, you have to forgive yourself and, like, be really okay. If, like, if you don't want to go out at night or if you don't feel comfortable doing something, it's okay to, like, be alone in your room or, like, stay in or do whatever it is. And I think the nice thing about safaris is... You don't have to worry about any of that. You're like, not going to go will, out at night. No, exactly. like, that's the thing. You're going to exactly. get out. You never know. You're going to wake up. Yeah, I'm sure you've got some story. But you're so tired. Alex, you've the guides up. in the back. <laughs> <laughs> you've gotten up at five in the morning or whatever. Yeah. You're exhausted. And mm. everyone's going to hang out and keep drinking after dinner. And you can join. And then you can slink back to your room on your own. There's yeah. like or a really... not. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> or join the staff. Yeah, and go and see that. what they are up to. Can we hear a little bit more about that? No, but... But I, I think that like the the loose structure of safari really like lends itself to being alone and in a group for just the right amount of time mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and giving yourself like the freedom to say, no, I'm going to stay and like read in my um, it's not a cabana. Yeah, it could be a <laughs> exactly. villa. <laughs> there we go. Okay, I was looking for the word, and I was like, it's definitely not cabana. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that like the, that structure, I, works really well for someone who wants to be alone but not 
absolutely completely alone. Well, I think also, without sounding too cheesy, this is going to sound very cheesy, (laughs) um, but sort of talking about, you know, that kind of time to be with yourself and that sort of level of like self-discovery and pause um, and sort of not like finding yourself, but kind of is so bound to solo travel and what I think so many people look for in solo travel, especially in recent years with, you know, the eat, pray, love and all of that stuff. Like it's sort of amazing that more people aren't signing up for Safari because it seems to be offering everything a lot of people are looking for. Well, Deb, you should explain your concept of rewilding because I feel like it plays right into that point and it's so psychologically fascinating. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I will. And that was a trip where, what, we had 12 women on that trip and nobody knew each other. And, you know, the one bit of magic that really happens is everybody leaves as lifelong friends and that's so special but the rewilding concept was um, developed by uh, myself and a a gentleman called Dr Ian McCullum who's a psychiatrist, a wilderness guide, a poet and an ex-Springbok rugby player. (laughs) Kind of a superhuman (laughs) that doesn't exist but I asked Ian why people were always saying that safari was the best holiday of their lives. Why, you know, people say don't say that about other places, they'll it was amazing but they won't say that and he said to me Deborah when you're going into the wild you know there's so many things that are reconnecting with our DNA from millions and millions of years ago you know we've lost touch with the, the grass the rain we run from it we don't go and stand in it you know we don't see sunsets we see buildings we don't even see stars anymore because there's lights all around us so when you go back into the wild you are reconnecting with all the things that we love and that we learn to survive from and so there's this real rewilding process that takes place inside of us and probably why we feel so fulfilled but a lot of women who came on that trip that we hosted last April and we're doing another one in June didn't quite understand the concept, but were brave enough to give it a chance. And I think, you know, from the feedback we got, um, it was really, really rewarding to see what people had got from it. And we brought in other people to speak about different things from conservation to art. You know, people really got to experience the wildlife, but more than that, a deep personal journey. I'm interested to know, um, before everyone left for that trip, were there some sort of frequently asked questions by the women that were going on it um, about what to expect or how they should prepare? Or, or what to wear. What to wear. <laughs> That's very important. That is the question I get asked the most. What must I wear? By men and women. It's a what very valid question. <laughs> no, it is. And it's, 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 it's fun. It's a fun question to, to answer. Um, you know, I think there are always concerns, you know, visa requirements, flights, disease, safety, political uh, stability in that country. Um, what's the flow of the day going to be like? General questions. Um, nothing specific. I think they trusted very much in the curation of uh, the venue and the people that were speakers. And that was a large part of trying to decide where to do this because you've got to do it in a place where there's a high emotional intelligence where nothing else is wrong. Because if the guest's coming and starts complaining about food or the room, then they're not going to be fully engaged Mm. in what the experience is. What were the things that you would say everyone has to look out for when planning their safari? 
There's so many, but and I think budget is a, is going to dictate immediately. You know that will sort of determine. For example, Botswana is your most expensive safari because you're paying for remote access, access that you're not going to find anywhere else in the world. It, that landscape is so preserved and so pristine. Um, you're going to get something of greater value maybe in South Africa, um, just more accessible. So the price point is different. So I think that and the amount of time are going to determine where that goes. And then from there, you know, um, who is the owner? Is it an individual? Is this their absolute love? Are they going to create this experience for you? Or are you part of a huge company here? And is that the experience you want? You know, do you want to go and shop in Macy's or do you want to go to Madison Avenue and go into a boutique? You know, there's a totally different experience and you're still going to walk out with the item you might be looking for, right? I think, you know, is it private? Or is it a national park? Because that's a completely different experience. You know, you can't go off-road in most national parks. Um, and if you've been tracking all day and, and that leopard walks off and that's the end of your experience, that can be a big downer. The same thing, you know, knowing about what size land that lodge is on. Is it 3,000 acres or is it 30,000 acres? Again, that's going to alter your experience tremendously. Are the lodges friends with each other that are neighbours? Can you track over into the neighbour's property? <laughs> you know, there's a lot more than, oh, big five and great, nice, pretty room. Um, so... I hope that gives you a bit of an idea. How long would you say it takes someone to like fully commit to rewilding? Being on the actual experience, I would say a minimum of four days, you know. I don't know whether you can go on safari for three weeks. I think it's too long. You know, if you ask me, I would say six nights, two different properties. I don't know what you guys think. Oh my gosh, I could go for like a month. <laughs> What's the longest you've done? No, I mean the longest I've done has probably been probably been two weeks when I was okay. when I was growing up. But yeah, maybe I, maybe I say that now because I'm in, currently in New York and I'm like I could go for three months. But, <laughs> but I, I would probably agree with you. Probably like six days, six, to, maybe nine, yeah. three camps, three different places, maybe. But you don't want to overdo it. Yeah, you, you don't want to leave wanting. You want to leave wanting more. You don't yeah, want to be like, right. oh, another elephant. Yeah, oh, another. <laughs> no, problem. it's true. It's it is true. And it can happen. It and can. I've seen that with people. Mm. Like, but I don't ever need to go back to Africa. I was there for three weeks. I'm like, no wonder you don't need to go back. That's <laughs> the saddest thing I've ever heard. Another elephant. <laughs> I know. There's a few of them. <laughs> um, I, as someone who's never taken a safari before and I think it's probably the same for groups and for solo travelers what is the cadence of the day like well if it depends on whether you're going to do two drives or one but generally if you would get up in the morning you might be awakened at what 5 35 mm. it's nice when they bring coffee right to your <gasps> tent <laughs> and then you go out for I don't know four three, hours, three, four, uh, hours. three four hours and then come back for lunch you do wind up eating a lot, I will say. Um, I, and drinking. As, yes, like. and drinking a lot. As somebody who tends to be fairly hyperactive, I found that to be kind of limiting. But there are, but you can do a walking safari, which is really exciting. And talk about a primal feeling. I mean, when you're just like walking, you know, in the footsteps of a creature you're tracking and you just like feel all of your, the hair on the back of your neck standing on end. But then you might go back out in the, in the afternoon for another drive and do sundowners out in the bush somewhere. 
Sundown as you learnt the word. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is, that, yeah. is that not like a Most people don't know what it is. Yes. Oh, no, really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Cocktails. Cocktails at sunset. Yeah. Sundown. <laughs> so it's like a really great happy hour. It is. Exactly. It is. Watching a herd of elephant or yeah. buffalo. It's amazing. <laughs> it's the best part. And Mary, I'm interested to know, because you um, mentioned lying in your tent late mm-hmm. at night and hearing the lion roaring. Mm-hmm. Have there been any moments when you've been truly terrified? <laughs> There have there have been moments, and I think that was there was a lion quite nearby. I was in Zambia, and I was staying in a in a tent um, in the Luplain National Park, and there aren't many lodges there. Um, there's only actually one permanent lodge, and so it just it felt really really isolated. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing hearing a lion, and I think that was probably. I mean, even though I have heard a lion, there was just something about the proximity. It just felt very, very close. And I kind of woke up in the middle of the night, and I was on my own. And I'd been traveling on my own, I think, for, for like a week and a half. So I'd been on my own a lot, and I kind of woke up, and I was like, <gasps> you know, you just, it's just like this primal feeling you have where you just kind of like gasp for air. And I think that was, it, lying in my tent alone, that was probably the scariest I've felt but I can't remember I've never I haven't had like a story where I've had like an elephant kind of pushing against my tent or you hear people you know they wake up in the morning and there was like a hyena like scratching at their tent or something I think Deb has a story involving dogs oh Oh, gosh (laughs) (laughs) I think you have a few stories I have a little bit too many stories (laughs) which why I don't like to have somebody with me in my tent Um, I was in Botswana and uh, we'd come back from our sundowners and I had thought, oh, let me go to the tent because I needed to actually do some emails, very boring, and get on Wi-Fi. And so I, it was still light, so I was allowed to w- walk back to the tent and I was on my own and uh, suddenly heard this scuffling around all behind me and I looked back and behind me were the pack of wild dogs that were we'd just been watching 16 of them that were now chasing an impala that was coming lightning bolt speed right at me <laughs> and I froze because it, w- it was too late it was everything was in slow motion and I literally grabbed my throat and <laughs> screaming because I thought you know these dogs are going to eat me because I'm the stationary fat thing and that Impala's <laughs> long gone. And they came running past me. The Impala brushed my shoulder and they killed it about 10 meters behind me. And uh, the, the lodge was exceptional because my shock level was through the roof. And they ran to me and they put a camera in my hand and they said, film it, film it, film it, which immediately took my attention from me and my fear to the incident, which everybody's mouths were on the floor. They, nobody had seen this before. Because once the dogs are eating, they're not going to go after And they you. don't go for humans. But yeah. in that moment, when you're facing 16 dogs running at you, Oh, I didn't know if they ate humans or not. <laughs> I mean, great sighting, though. Great, great sighting, sighting. Yeah. amazing sighting. At, at dinner, you won. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you definitely won. As, as Derek Chabert, the owner of the camp, said to me, it's in your greatest moments of fear that you feel alive. Mm-hmm. Isn't it, Deborah? <laughs> it's nice to still be alive when you hear that. <laughs> yes, I would agree. Um, earlier, we were talking about a lodge that has a lot of female guides and a lot of priority on on female representation on staff. And the name of that lodge will be in our show notes. But I'm curious if there are any like women-led companies, where Africa is one of them, or lodges or places that really prioritize, again, like female representation Mm -hmm. that you think should get more attention, any of you? 
Yeah, and Mary can certainly explain one of them. Um, but yes. there are a lot of female-owned lodges mm -hmm. in Kenya and in South Africa. Um, I think more you're seeing more and more female guides in the role, which is really encouraging. And there's actually a girls' college of tourism in South Africa, which is a philanthropic effort, uh, privately funded and run, where 90 girls from disadvantaged communities get the opportunity to come in and learn hospitality. And these are people who may have not even eaten with a knife and fork. You know, they might have had a, a dream job as a domestic worker, and now they are learning to be chefs, front of house, um, really getting amazing amazing hotel school skills and I think that's so important to see the empowerment of women in South Africa and then them going and working in these five-star properties and meeting American guests I and mean, the reward and the sort of holistic approach there is fantastic and I think Mary you can talk about it's Delini isn't it? Dunia. Dunia, sorry. Yeah. yeah yeah because I mean obviously you know safari is a is a very male dominated industry um, I've stayed at many many camps, lodges in Tanzania, which are entirely run by males. And I was recently at a camp uh, in the Serengeti, which is entirely run by females. Uh, everyone from the camp manager to the security guard to the chef, the guides, they're all female. And it's a really, really amazing experience because it's quite interesting because I think for them it's 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 been quite tough because it's such a male-dominated industry and they often get stopped by the safari guides and they kind of ask them what they're doing. But they are just an amazing group of women and they've kind of formed this sisterhood. They offer, you know, a, a truly amazing safari experience like many other safari lodges would. It's just that it's all run by females. And it's, yeah, it's located in, in the Serengeti, in an unfenced part of the Serengeti. So they, they pretty much have to deal with everything from elephants kind of tearing down pipes. Uh, they have to go out there and fix it themselves. Um, so, yeah, when, when I was there, it was, it was actually interesting. There was, that was when I was staying with the Dutch tourists. Um, and they have a lot of a lot of male uh, guests who go and stay there, and females. And um, uh, yeah, I would I would say that is probably one of the most pioneering uh, female operations in I would say in Africa. I think because it's I know there's a lot of places where they have uh, female like all female safari guides and females in in powerful positions but just the fact that it's entirely female is is, is quite special and we should also mention the anti-poaching female teams yes. because that is really incredible they I mean, are these amazing. are women that are you know in zimbabwe they're armed in south africa they're not armed which i think is far better um yeah. but the black mambas that's an all-female team and uh, you know that's really special to to see that kind of work that you know would never have been done by women before and it's changing perceptions, I think, in the local communities as well to see these these women in this in these incredible positions going out into the bush every single day um, on on foot. And they are just absolutely fearless. And I think when they go back to the communities, they're not only changing the perception of the men in the communities, seeing these women in, in such a position of power, but the kids as well. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most important roles for them as as role models in their communities. It's, it's really quite amazing to see. Is there anything about just in your experience on safari with female guides that makes their ability to explain what's going on or tracking different than a male guide? I think females have got a self-preservation gene that a lot of uh, 
young buck ego males do not have. (laughs) And I would go with a female guide any day, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes clients have the misperception when they get there and they see a a beautiful blonde with, you know, all her bullets on her her hip and a lipstick, that that's not what they want to be with. I mean, that's exactly who you want to be with because you're not going to be in any risky situations. That person might be able to do her multitasking like you know women can and be picking up situations of danger far faster and far easier. That's my personal opinion. I don't yeah. know, Mary, if you feel no, the same. No, I would agree. I think they're also probably a little bit more intuitive. Um, just I found in my experience, you know, sort of really sort of being in tune with the guests, I think a little bit more than some male safari guides that I've had. Just it's in tiny little details. And I know that we've, Deb and I have spoken about this before. It's like the really the small details that count. Um, uh, just from everything, from just remembering, you know, the drink that you wanted when you're having a sundowner or, you know, tiny, tiny little details, which I think are kind of just make them stand out a little bit more. The guides that are doing it as a career, that's mm. serious. But there's yeah. a lot of young, cute boys who do this for fun. Yeah, for a year absolutely. Or two. And that's different, you know, and that's why you've got to choose carefully. Sounds like dating. Find wives. Maybe we start an app for that. I'm like cocky fever. <laughs> everyone's everyone's learned their lesson from like the fun, cute boy. <laughs> um, well, I think we actually have a story about the Black Mambas on our website, and you can also find yes. Mary Holland wrote it. Fine. There's also a complete guide to safaris and Mary Holland's other article about taking a solo safari are all on cntraveler.com. And I just want to add that Mary's story is part of a large rollout of stories we did all about solo travel that you can also check out on our website. And if you didn't listen to our Joy of All Female Group Trips, uh, it's a great primer just for taking an organized group trip if you never have before and then working with operators on finding the perfect all-women's group to go with as well. Mary Holland, where can people keep up with your travels on the internet? Um, I'm just um, at Miss Mary Holland, um, and I I don't really tweet. I'm mostly on Instagram, but yeah, I I do post on Instagram quite frequently. And Alex? I'm on Instagram at WordMover. And Deb? RawAfrica.com. Amazing. I'm at Oh Hey There Mare. And I'm at Lale Hanna. Before we end, I just wanted to shout out that Women Who Travel just launched a bunch of new trips to Colombia. We are going almost once a month for the entire rest of the year on those all-female uh, group trips. We would love to see you guys. Some of them will have myself and Lale and Megan on them. So definitely check it out. You can find those trips and more information at womenwhotravel.com and elcamino.travel. Talk to you next week. Bye.